how was this specimen discovered and uh, and and the curious markings identified which sparked the investigation this particular sauropod we nicknamed dolly part of dolly was actually originally found in 1990 by a museum of the rockies crew and what was kind of funny is at the time when they were excavating it um, there were actually two layers of rock that were uh, fossiliferous and the layer that Dolly ended up being in was incredibly hard and very difficult to see a lot of the bone. And in fact, the Museum of the Rockies was trying to excavate fossils from the layer below the Dolly horizon. And so they were basically excavating down. They could see there was some of this bone. They couldn't really tell what it was, so they just wrapped it up and it sat in museum storage for, you know, 20 plus years. Um, and it wasn't until uh, I came onto the Museum of the Rockies as an undergrad and then a master's student, I had specialized in sauropods before and Jack said well we have this sauropod quarry right outside of Bozeman and we even have some material that has not been prepared yet so why don't we prepare it and that can be a you know one of the specimens or an emphasis in your thesis and so they started you know preparing the fossils that had been originally collected in uh, 1990 actually contained a skull and part of a neck from this uh, sauropod that we ended up calling Dolly the skull is like the rarest part of a sauropod, and here we have this beautiful skull and partial articulated neck. So Jack decided that we had to go back and see if there was more. Um, so from 2014 to 2015, uh, I went back and led digs to get as much of the rest of Dolly and the other dinosaurs um, from that locality as we could. You know, I wanted to be able to look at the fossil scientifically, and, you know, with fresh eyes and work um, all the way through the skeleton. So I waited until all the fossils, even the ones we had collected, uh, were cleaned and prepared. And that started in 2018. And I've looked at sauropods from literally all over the world. And I've seen all sorts of weird things, you know, signs of, you know, broken and re-healed bones, things like that. And as soon as I saw these features in Dolly, I knew immediately that it was something unusual and something that at least I had never seen before. Linnaean. The Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society of London. 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 Linnaean Society of London. My name is Dr. Kerry Woodruff, and I'm the Director of Paleontology at the Great Plains Dinosaur Museum in Malta, Montana, USA. The dinosaur family tree has two main branches, and birds are dinosaurs. Um, so the branch of the family tree that birds are a part of we call Cerishia. And Cerishia contains the meat-eating dinosaurs, so like, you know, the infamous T-Rex and Velociraptor of, you know, Jurassic Park lore, and of course the sauropods, um, which is kind of funny to think that like a T-Rex and Dolly are more closely related than either one of them is to another dinosaur. And we know from studying living dinosaurs, aka birds, that they have this very elaborate and incredibly complex respiratory system. And in fact, parts of this complex respiratory structure actually connect and pervade into the bone. And we actually see basically these sockets, if you will, where this respiratory tissue can connect into some of these bones. And even though we don't have the, you know, the respiratory tissue preserved, we see these same connection points uh, in the bones of other uh, non-bird Cerishian dinosaurs. So again, we know because of looking at living dinosaurs today, you know, we know the similarities in some of these uh, anatomical structures. And... Again, I've looked at dinosaurs, you know, all over the world, sauropods, and never seen features like this. But as soon as I looked at Dolly, um, normally they're incredibly smooth, smooth, almost glass-like bone. Um, but the margins were really irregular, really rough textured bone. And actually coming out from was this 
almost imagine it, it looked like if you had, could fossilize a piece of cauliflower or broccoli, this very irregular, bumpy, lumpy looking bone. So again, nothing unlike anything we'd ever seen before. You know, I had an idea that because of location, we might be looking at something in Dali that was respiratory derived, but I wasn't sure for certain. So I literally just posted some pictures on Facebook and Twitter, you know, just to the whole paleontology community. Hey, other sauropod people, other paleontologists, what the heck is this? Has anyone seen anything like this? And immediately I got a whole bunch of responses. Um, these amazing experts reach out and basically the group consensus was, we've never seen a respiratory infection in a dinosaur. This has to be what it looks like. And because they were so quick to respond and they were really interested in it, and because again, pathologies and infections and disease are just out of my wheelhouse, you know, I knew that on my own, I couldn't properly document this. There would be huge gaps in my knowledge I'd be missing. So I just simply said, well, why don't we investigate this and research it and write it up together? The overwhelming majority of the fossil record, and in this context, I'm going to be specifically saying the dinosaurian fossil record, is, is you know, it's the bones, right? We very rarely get the soft tissues preserved. Therefore, anything we want to say about dinosaurs, non-avian dinosaurs, right, we have to derive from evidence that's osteological, so bones, teeth, claws, you know, the like. And, you know, disease has been prevalent and around ever since life began. And understanding the history of fossil diseases, so we would refer to that as, you know, paleopathology, signs of disease and trauma, we have a very expansive fossil record of that. We have examples of a bone that broke and healed we have signs of arthritis, um, you know, like a tooth infection and abscess. We even have, uh, just in the last few years, you know, truly demonstrated cancer, you know, bone cancers in dinosaurs, blood-borne infections. Um, but again, these are osteologically derived disease, right? We have to have evidence and traces on the bone. So it's kind of funny because, you know, we can... Look around the world just today, and how many times do we, you know, flip on and watch a documentary, and, you know, there's a sick or injured animal hobbling about, right? We know that these are prevalent in life today, and therefore they must have had to have been prevalent in past life. But the evidence that we have, the sort of snapshots of those really rough times in an animal's life, are so rare and fleeting in the fossil record. Um, and therefore, sort of any time we get these little snapshots, they really go far to help us contribute and understand a lot of these intimate life histories of these particular animals. We can't, for the fossil record, we can't do any sort of, you know, modern medical testing. If my dog is sick, I take him to the vet, and the vet may do blood work or other chem work or things like that. Um, we can't do that in the fossil record. And again, if we think about the modern medical record, if you're at the point where you have to examine the bones of your patients, it's probably a little too late for help. In the fossil record, we're trying to diagnose these traumas, these pathologies, in essentially a non-medical way, uh, which is very challenging. So when you look at a lot of the paleopathological literature, you'll see a diagnosis and then dash like. So you might say, 
It was a tuberculosis-like infection. It was an arthritis-like disease. Because again, we can't say for certainty. Um, they just, all of the evidence we have suggests that it is something very similar to this. But again, because we can't do a lot of these modern testings, right, we can't say that's what it is. And so what we did to diagnose Dolly is, again, knowing because where these pathologic structures were in the vertebrae, that was a good guess at suggesting we might be looking at something respiratory in origin. We then tried to diagnose it from, as best as we could, a modern medical approach. So with this differential diagnosis, you start with, okay, where are places, things we should be looking at? Well, we have respiratory. Um, then what we did is look at it from an evolutionary perspective. And to do that, we used what's called the extant phylogenetic bracket. So we just call that the EPB. Uh, classic example, let's just say we didn't know that dinosaurs laid eggs. Well, what we do is we bracket them between their closest living relatives, birds and crocodilians. Both of those lay eggs, therefore dinosaurs laid eggs, right? And of course, we know dinosaurs did lay eggs. So we looked at that. We bracket dinosaurs uh, in between crocodilians and birds, and we say, okay, we have something that is looks like it might be respiratory in origin. Let's actually, from an evolutionary perspective, look at respiratory disorders birds and dinosaurs get. And the reason that this is important from understanding this evolutionary context is not just understanding or trying to understand the evolutionary history of a disease itself, but this also helps with the diagnosis because a lot of times for paleopathologies, respectfully, it's almost like the kid's game of where you compare two objects, right? Looking at the structure and seeing, do they look more or less similar to one another? Um, but we know in diseases today, right, many diseases and disorders can express the same symptom. If someone is sneezing today, right, that could be, the sneezing could be caused as something as common as the cold to something as serious as COVID, Right? So if you were trying to diagnose just sneezing, right, your, what you diagnosed as the cause and even the severity of it could be polar opposites. right? And we also know today that, yes, especially because of zoonotic diseases, right, like a lot of our own flu derives from birds, but because of the ecologies and the biologies of different animals, they can have incredibly differing diseases. So, for instance, we know Dolly lived in a humid terrestrial ecosystem, right? Well... We may look at modern examples and maybe we see an outgrowth or pathologic structure that looks similar to something that bowhead whales get. But the ecologies make absolutely no sense, right? One is a terrestrial humid vertebrate, you know, the other is a cold water, you know, marine. So understanding the ecologies of these diseases also makes sense. So we can't just simply do the matching game, if you will. So we quickly were able to, especially understanding that crocodilians don't possess this same respiratory style system as birds. They don't have these really complicated respiratory tissue, nor, you know, respiratory tissue that connects into the bones. We knew that very quickly we could sort of exclude crocodilians from this. So it was then basically a process of elimination looking at specifically avian respiratory uh, disorders. Dolly had air sacculitis with associated osteomyelitis. And just to translate that, it means it had an infection of the air sacs with a secondary bone infection. 
even though there are a lot of things that can cause erysaculitis in birds today, right? It's a disease we see, right? Even it can be fungal in origin, it can be bacterial in origin and beyond, but it still causes this infection of these air sacs. So it was cool that we could really pinpoint a particular disease, not just something respiratory, right? But specifically an infection of these air sacs. Of course, humans today, we get all sorts of respiratory diseases and disorders. Some of those we even zoonotically, you know, get from birds. But what is neat is we didn't find a one-to-one -one perfect case, which I didn't expect because, you know, looking at Dolly and a bird today, I mean, that would mean that a disease had to go completely unaltered for 150 million years, which not going to happen. Also, the size, the physiology, you know, in a bird and a sauropod, even though there are similarities, there's a lot of differences. But there were a lot of similarities within air sacculitis, um, a causal agent being what's called um, aspergillosis. And aspergillosis um, is one of the most common respiratory disorders in birds today, and it's actually caused from breathing in uh, fungal spores, a particular um, fungal genus. And um, it is really neat because it's so common today, you know, it's one of the most common respiratory disorders in birds today, but mammals can get it and humans can get it too. In birds, it seems to affect, at least in extant cases, right? It seems to affect and cause all these horrible outgrowths in the soft tissues. Um, but in mammals, and there are some really sad cases with humans, it actually causes weird vertebral growths. You know, we suggest that potentially Dolly could have had an aspergillosis-like infection that caused the, the air sacculitis, um, or, you know, something similar, fungal-derived. Um, in birds today, again, sort of regardless of what the causal mechanism that, you know, for the air sacculitis, they show what we would associate as flu or pneumonia-like symptoms. Coughing, sneezing, fever, headache, sore throat, labored breathing, diarrhea, pale complexion, and these are all the exact same symptoms we've all felt one time or another when we've all had any respiratory disorder. You know, when you have a head cold and your head is so swollen and you're just, you, you can't think straight and you're just sneezing and hacking up all sorts of stuff. I mean, probably 150 million years ago, Dolly was feeling just as crummy when it was sick with a respiratory infection or disorder as you do when you have a respiratory illness. By actually being able to pinpoint a specific disease, we can not only say that, yes, non-bird dinosaurs, non-avian dinosaurs got respiratory disorders and illnesses, but we can say, you know, specifically what kinds of respiratory illnesses they got. We don't know how long Dolly had this disease, but, and again, we can't say definitively that, it, you know, Dolly died of this infection, but in looking at air sacculitis today in birds, Without medical treatment, it's often fatal. So did Dolly just one day keel over, just dead from this disease? Or we know these animals were herding animals. You know, did it, because it was so sick, did it fall behind in being alone and so visibly sick and ill, did that make it an easy target for predators? Uh, you know, those we can't say, but in one way or another, I think it ultimately caused the death of the animal.
Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society of, of London. 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 London.